and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, like everyone else in the world, we talk about what's happening with the coronavirus and what's likely to happen next. Thanks for being here. So we've been trying to think about what's most useful for you, our listeners, in this most unusual of moments. All of you will be experiencing perhaps quite severe limitations on your lives. Likely you're confined to your homes for much of the day. Children may not be in schools. Offices, shops and restaurants are closed. And the speed of that change has been remarkable. Just two weeks ago, we were we were traveling the world, speaking to audiences of hundreds who didn't think twice about congregating together. And now that would be unthinkably irresponsible. So far, most people's direct experience of the coronavirus COVID-19 is through news reports rather than direct experience of the disease. And this means that we're spending a lot of time thinking about what might be to come. And that can bring anxiety and fear for many people. How we face that at this critical moment will determine how we respond to it. We're all sitting in our houses with our loved ones, perhaps, or perhaps not, often thinking about our own mortality and maybe that of those in our community. Society feels fragile right now, and that's frightening. And it's also an opening for something new. So that's where we'd like to begin today's conversation. We're going to have a reflection about this moment we're in and how we can meet it with as much humanity as we need to. So friends, Paul, Christiana, we're all here sitting in isolation in our different homes. I'd like you to invite you to join me in a few thoughts on that. Well, um, thanks, Tom. Uh, yeah, as, as you have said, we are really living under extraordinary times. And I must say, I, I confess to having underestimated where this would go just three or four or five weeks ago. Uh, I really do think that this is unlike anything most of us have ever experienced. The, the sudden rise and the quick spread of the coronavirus has disoriented us. Um, and very interestingly, it has burst the mythical bubble of exceptionalism. The fact that we think that, uh, that global issues don't reach us or that any threat uh, is, or that we are impervious to any threat. Well, you know, clearly that mythical bubble has been burst. And we're suddenly all of us very aware of both our individual vulnerability as well as our collective vulnerability. So I would say stress is rampant, mental health is strained, and we, again, we have a choice of succumbing to that or trying to stay focused on what we can do to support, uh, physically support ourselves and our family members, but also to reach out to so many people who we don't know and who we can emotionally support. Because the fact is that this physical distancing cannot be uh, a emotional distancing. So I think it really behooves us all to be prudent, certainly to not overexpose ourselves to others because we may be communicating the virus to others even if we still feel healthy. But in addition to that, 
in addition to the prudence, we have to rise to this occasion and and reach out and uh, and be very supportive and fantastic stories that we're hearing that we can share with you in a minute. That's a great summary, Christiana. Uh, thank you for helping us kind of understand where we are at this moment. And, um, you know, I've been talking on this podcast for, for a year or more about how, uh, you know, I think government's gone and, and, you know, government's weak and government's no longer able to protect us. And and I mean that really much, very much within the context of climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, decarbonizing the economy, taxing and regulating greenhouse gas emissions. Conversely, I'm acutely aware of suddenly the enormous impact of government when it's faced with um, real and present danger, when it's called upon uh, to perform its its sacred function to protect That's the citizen. That's really interesting, isn't it? Sorry, I didn't mean to... No, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. Sorry, no. I mean, this is, this is like, you know, this is... This is a flowering, if you will, of of the the necessity of government. Um, you know, I couldn't believe that uh, you know air travel has has kind of stopped pretty yeah. much uh, in, in in most parts of the world. Um, you know, we have uh, extraordinary situation in in Italy and, and and France where people are literally you know being very strongly advised, cajoled not to leave their homes. I'm I'm in London at the moment. I'm expecting to be told by the government at any minute that I I shouldn't really leave my home, and. I, I, I'm very moved by the fact that um, when we face a public health emergency, um, these kinds of measures are taken with devastating impacts on the economy. But what happens is government prioritizes the preservation of life over uh, the economy uh, at a moment like this. And I, and, and I think there's an enormous learning for us there uh, that, that we do need to, to recognize the preservation of life uh, and 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 the economy as it as as it is um, are different things, and and we do have to 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 prioritize appropriately. It's just obviously I'm saying that a bit within the context of climate change, but also just like noticing where we are as a society right now. It's really, I mean, it's so interesting what you're saying. I mean, I, I notice in myself that I'm kind of impressed that governments have done all of this, right? I mean, they've changed the world in two weeks with these different regulations. Stuff that we've been told has been impossible, have been working on this for three, for 30 years, has suddenly happened in the last few weeks as a result of what everybody's feeling. And your point about the economy, Paul, I think is really interesting. I mean, one of the things I observed looking at the FT website earlier today is, um, actually, it wasn't the FT, it was BBC. You know, market tanks by 10% was on like third or fourth news item down. Yeah, yeah, You know, sure, because yeah. actually these other things are kind of regarded as more important. It's really interesting how that has kind of, that that the acute nature of this crisis, the world can pivot in that moment. Well, yes, I sort of agree with you. But, um, and I do think that most governments have done the responsible thing in view of incomplete information, because basically everyone is learning as we go. Um, And so in the face of uncertainty and incomplete information, most governments have been very prudent in their measures. And at the same time, um, I actually think that this is a very powerful example of the need to have both policy and individual behavior changes. Yeah. Because you could perfectly well have policy measures where individuals just decide they're just going to go against it. And the fact that the policy measures have been driving us in one direction and individual behavior choices Mm. have been driving us in the same direction means that we have a very clear example of top-down, bottom-up optimization, I would say, 
of, uh, of behavioral changes, which is what we have been talking about for a long time. Quite unfortunately, however, the very negative consequence of this is an economic downturn, which is not what we would be looking toward uh, with climate change. But separating that, um, it is a very powerful example of what can be done if governments, corporations, let's not leave them out of this uh, of this equation because we have seen amazing, amazing news sharings of what corporations are doing. So, you know, at all three levels, civil society, corporates, and governments, all rowing in the same direction. How amazing that is. So one thing I wanted to ask you, Christiana, is we've just come around from, from we've just written a book and then we're traveling around the world talking about stubborn optimism in the face of climate change. You know, you don't have to, you can look at the reality and how tough it is, but you don't have to submit to it and you take a kind of attitude of possibility People who are kind of sitting at home and are now kind of like afraid or whatever else, or maybe they're enjoying time at home at the moment, but they're anxious as to what's to come. Do you think that concept has currency and value for them? And how would you think that people might use a concept like that? Well, and I do think so, because um, I think there is a very important distinction to be made between prudence and caution on the one side and panic. Mm. I think prudence and caution is definitely called for. And we all have to participate in that in order to protect ourselves and especially to protect others. But panic is something that is unhelpful, especially in a moment of crisis. We don't want to panic because if we do, we take actions and decisions that may not be in our own or in the interest of others. So I think it is important to uh, to be very cautious and to do the physical isolation um, that is being recommended by the health experts, but at the same time to avoid the panic and to uh, use this as an opportunity to dig into ourselves and to see, you know, as, as we talk in the book, that we have a very deep and innate regenerative spirit in all of us and that that is the well from which we need to drink right now. You know, I went out today for a walk in the park and there are people working in the park and there's someone digging up the park and he looks at me and I look at him and we smile at each other. Now, that would never happen any other time. This is London. No one smiles at each other. I'm walking back from the park past a guy who's delivering a package in a Royal Mail van. He smiles at me. I smile at him. There's something very beautiful about the people coming together at this moment. And let's not lose that because it's a very sweet thing. Yeah, it's true. There's a kind of vulnerability to everyone. Everyone's kind of cracked open a little bit. And I mean, I live down deep in the countryside compared to you, Paul, and it's sort of through the roof here. I mean, everybody's being, you know, at a distance and in a very English way, sort of incredibly <laughs> friendly. And I kind of, you know, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but kind of can't get through to the kitchen for all the notes that have come through the door saying, if you need any help, give me a call, which is great. You know, I mean, and obviously I'm talking to the neighbours, et cetera, myself. I mean, what it reminds me of is when we were writing the book, I read this amazing book by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark, where she looks at what happens to people in a crisis. And she looked at New Orleans after Katrina and all these other different things. And what she found from digging into social research is that 
the vast majority of people, almost universal, people will respond with love and kindness and compassion and respect and care for each other. The only scenario where people don't respond with those emotions and those feelings is when they think others are responding in a different way. And then it kind of, it escalates into a sense of kind of mutual conflict, etc. But as long as you don't think that, what what spills out of humans in moments of crisis is love and kindness and care. Well, and, you know, I've been collecting over the past few days because that is so true, Tom, so, so true. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sitting here in Costa Rica in my little flat and it's pretty high um, and I can see over the city. And this is a time in Costa Rica in which many, many trees bloom. And so I can see over the city and I see little pockets of blossoms on trees in all different colors. And those pockets of blossoms are exactly the pockets of random acts of kindness that are now blossoming everywhere. And I've actually made a little list list. (laughs) of everything that I've seen over the past 24 hours. Can I share my little list with you? Please do. This sounds like a lovely shopping list of... Of blossom. So this is just over the past 24 hours, okay? So you are, you're in the UK, so you will be happy to know that in the UK there are already 20,000 volunteers who have actually volunteered to be tested for new coronavirus vaccines yeah. without knowing what the outcome of that is going to be. Uh, but you know, the, the government and the research lab asked for volunteers and now they have 20,000. There is a university in the Philippines that has developed a testing kit that is now being rolled out that costs $22, as opposed to the usual industrial one of $300 to $500. They developed that like in the last week or something. That's amazing. It's unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. People really pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. Now, in the Philippines also... Do you know that there is a new program to lend bikes to a new concept that I did not, I never read about, something called netizens. Those are citizens who are networked over the internet. So netizens are actually now increasingly organized to lend bikes to the health workers because in the Philippines, they stopped all public transport and the health workers were walking two, three hours to their clinics or to their hospitals, and they were already exhausted by the time they got there. So there's now a program to lend bikes to all of these health workers so that they can actually get to work and back. In my wonderful little country in Costa Rica, we have uh, a huge company that produces all kinds of alcohol, drinking alcohol, rum, and I don't know what else. Well, they have stopped producing all alcohol and they have turned their entire production capacity to um, producing hand disinfectants. Same thing as a very large French perfume company doing the same and handing it out for free. That's amazing. That one, sorry to interrupt, but LVMH, they, um, no, is it LVMH? Yeah, it is Louis Vuitton, isn't it? And they, they and handing it out for free. I mean, no sense, no for perfumes, free. nothing, and just distributing it. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I don't know if you all saw the fantastic little video in uh, Seville, Spain, 
of a fitness instructor who climbed up to the roof of, uh, of the building, uh, a roof that was a little bit lower than all of the surrounding buildings. Everyone in those buildings is under lock, uh, under lockdown. So he hops up on the roof and he starts doing a workout session. I love that video. And yeah. with very loud music. And, you know, all, all the buildings around him, all of the balconies, people come out to the balconies and start doing their workout to his um, to his music. Same thing with um, Spanish people at night standing on their balconies and applauding into the into the void because there's no one there to applaud because they were applauding and thanking the health workers who are uh, doing such a brilliant job. There are schools in so many countries, including in Costa Rica, who are now handing out meals to children who are not coming to school um, but need the meal because many of these children, that's the only meal that they get during the day. So because the schools is closed, what the schools have decided is that's not a reason to not give them a meal. So they're making the meals, packing them up, and delivering them to their homes. In Australia and now in many other countries, but I think Australia started first, Supermarkets open an hour early and don't allow anyone that is not an older person because that way there are fewer people in the supermarket and there's less risk of contamination for the elderly and the elderly can make do their shopping in a tranquil and calm way as opposed to the craziness that um, happens the rest of the day. Um, and of course, everyone has seen the singing balconies in Italy. And you know, the list could go on and on and on. The point here is, how fantastic is it that in moments of the greatest darkness, right, we are rising up to be a light, to be a beacon on the hill for ourselves and for each other. And that is exactly the supportive, you know, random acts of kindness that really nourish the soul, nourish the heart, and frankly, help us to physically remain healthy and resilient. Well, that is quite a shopping list, uh, Christiana. I would like to go to that shop more often and get more of those wonderful things from those delicious shelves. Um, you know, it was it was lovely. You had that image of the blossom. Uh, you know, we, we have been in in in, uh, in 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 you know in northern Europe in a in a long winter, and it's now the spring. There are the buds out there, and I think this is a, a wonderful metaphor. Um, you know, we have these incredible developments. Frankly, there's a there's a couple of billion of us in lockdown, but most of us have got the internet now. Uh, it is amazing the degree to which we're able to socialize and understand each other. And, you know, if they close the opera houses, but they open the balconies in Italy, it's a change. It's different. Um, but it shows that the spirit of humanity is alive and developing this different way of being. And that's very exciting. Yeah. I've, and I've noticed, I mean, one is it's had a really humanizing effect on the internet. Like, you know, people bring much more of themselves to what they do online. I mean, I've got two kids now who aren't in school. So, uh, you know, along with everything else, I've, you know, doing homeschooling and, and um, we've done it before. So, um, you know, I, I do my bit, but my wife is brilliant at it. So we we, we enjoy doing that. But um, Tom, Tom, hold on, Tom. <laughs> hold on, Tom. You told me this morning when I called to find out how you were doing with the kids at home and you said you're feeling very snug. Because you have been doing this for years and hence you're quite well prepared. Whereas there are other parents who have never done this before and who are really struggling to figure out how do they do this. 
So, um, yeah, carry top, on with your snugness. Top tips for homeschooling, Tom. Top it's, tips. It's, it's hard, right? I, my favourite tweet on this was someone said, I've been homeschooling my six-year-old for three hours and I now think all teachers should be paid a million dollars a year. You know, yeah. it's really hard yeah. to suddenly have yeah. your kids in your house all day and you've got to try and teach them something. I mean, my top tip is don't try and teach them anything. That's our secret to homeschooling. You know, this could be... Who is it more difficult for, the kids or the parents? <laughs> it's difficult for everyone. But, you know, I mean, the truth is that, and not to get too sidetracked by this, but kids are so overscheduled. They're so overtested. They are so driven around and kind of, you know, their lives are so managed. And most of the evidence suggests that net-net, that's not so good for them. Now, many of them, of course, are going to have to be confined to homes, but they can still go outside in most places to parks. So I say, depending on the age, you know, let them have more imaginative play. Let them enter into their own worlds and be kids again and run around outside where they can. And yes, you'll need to do a little bit of the kind of reading and maths and whatever else. But for me, I think this is an opportunity for kids as well as adults to take a breath. And I mean, I was saying about this kind of humanizing impact on the internet. There's all these amazing kids authors like Mo Willems and Oliver Jeffers and, and others that parents will know. And they're all running every day, like 10, 20 minutes or half an hour of free childcare, where they like invite you into their studios and show you all their pictures and help draw pictures with the kids. It's amazing, right? The degree to which people are bringing everything they can through the mediums we've got to bring everyone together. I find it really inspiring, actually. Oh, it's a fantastic time in, in, in that sense. And, you know, we, we are learning a kind of spirit, but... Stepping back just to, to sort of what's going on in the world, I mean, a week, I, I think in the UK, the, our chancellor a week ago said a 16 billion bailout. Now it's a 330 billion bailout. How Can I ask you both, um, as you look into the economic time ahead, clearly our hearts go out to everyone who's, you know, missing paychecks and is, is thinking about, you know, how to pay the rent or buy food. And we trust the government is going to come on with the interim measures. But I mean, what what kind of you know for our listeners who who are who are outraged but also optimistic about the climate crisis? What do you take from the the massive economic change, or is it too early to even think about that? So I've got an answer. I'm sure Christian's got a better one. Um, but so I think that we have been collectively failing to come up with the big ideas for the next generation of how we're going to organize our economy, right? If you look at some of the major structural elements of our economy, they are the product of the sort of regeneration period after the Second World War, whatever you think of them, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, you know, um, even universal healthcare in some countries, universal education. These are kind of big ideas that came out of that period after that turmoil. And as climate change has been accelerating and getting worse and getting worse, we've not really come up with kind of how do we do things now? How do we avoid this massive polarization of wealth, which is bad for climate change as well as everything else? How do we create a system that actually values what is important rather than just valuing throughput of stuff? So it's not a specific answer, but we're beginning to see now people calling for the fact that as we consider major bailouts, major restructuring of economics, which is going to be really broken after this. I think there is a window of opportunity to make some of the jumps that we've been struggling to make while the system's been moving forward at full speed. And it's going to be, there's going to be a chance to kind of intervene in a way that is probably a once in a generation chance to do that. Yeah, I agree. And I was so pleasantly surprised this morning to read that 
um, Fatih Birol, the head of the International Energy Agency, is actually calling for exactly that. Mm. He is calling for the recovery packages to be very, very mindful of, uh, of the direction of the economy that those recovery packages are actually going to set. Um, because, you know, the, the fact is, even though we are um, perhaps at the beginning or maybe at the height, but certainly not at the end of the health crisis, governments and financial leaders are already considering what recovery packages they're going to put in place for, um, for this economy that has been so badly hit. Um, interestingly enough, they are thinking of the economic recovery because of the economic paralysis that the health uh, pandemic had. But that recovery package or those packages are actually going to be the most important decision that we have made on climate change in years, in years. Yeah. Because if the investments that are put in place now um, to kickstart this economy are directed into high carbon assets and industries, then we will totally have locked out the current potential that we have to bend the curve of emissions this decade, which we know is absolutely critical. On the other hand, and this is what Fatih was emphasizing this morning, uh, with interest rates at an all-time low, right, we have never seen, and, and in fact even going lower, um, political and financial leaders now have the unprecedented historical opportunity to accelerate the energy transition, putting us on that safe path to half emissions by 2030. And this, honestly, we would not have had this opportunity um, were it not for this incredible crisis. So, you know, this really has to be harvested. As Paul, you have well, well po pointed out, we have to be incredibly mindful, especially of the informal sector yeah. that are losing their income, are losing their livelihoods. Uh, of and and there, I think before these top-down measures kick in, which we are all lobbying for, uh, kicking in in the right direction. There, there's also a huge space for individual support, uh, and so all of us need to be mindful of the fact that if we currently, I don't know, we engage people who come in to help us at home with, with the garden, with cleaning, with kids, with whatever, continue to pay those people, even if they're not coming to your home because they choose not to or because you choose not to. But they need that financial support more than ever right now. We also need to continue to support local restaurants, local, you know, all the little local businesses that are incredibly vulnerable to this because the large corporations, they have more resilience, right? Their pockets are deeper. They can take this uh, better than the small and medium enterprises. So we have to continue to support certainly small and medium enterprises, but also all those people who work on an hourly or, or daily wage basis. It is absolutely our responsibility to do so if we can. Yeah. And I want to just say that the, the, there's there's us as individuals, and I agree with every word you just said, Christiana, and there's there's our governments which represent us. And I believe that, you know, that the, the way the economy has developed, um, more and more, so to say, of, of financial risk has been carried by more and more people, um, very often with, with less working rights than they used to have in the unionized days and so on. So this is exactly the moment when our governments have a, a, an obligation uh, to act 
to protect the vulnerable in our society. That means making payments immediately and regularly. And it does open up thoughts of a universal basic income. Uh, a number of academics are talking about it in the moment, both from you know direct government action today through to how we can make sure that were there to be any other disruptions in the future, that is not the most vulnerable in our society that suffer because that is not the purpose of a government. The government is supposed to, to a certain extent, uh, protect us by collectively aggregating our interests for the common good. Yes, well said for an, a person who lives in the industrialized countries, Paul. Yeah. But let me remind you that that uh, largesse that any government in an industrialized country could have is not the flexibility that governments in developing countries have. There, the budgets are already and were already hugely strained before this crisis. And I don't have that huge expectation that these governments are going to be able to step in. Hence, it is important to optimize what is possible. Mm. Yes, the governments will do what they can, but all of us citizens cannot export that responsibility only to governments. It is way too important to export that responsibility only to governments. Understood. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And and just to go back to the macro picture as well, I mean, I told, you know, this is the chance, right, to restructure finance in a manner that works for the things we care about. And and the great news is well, there are some amazing leaders who are making those decisions, right? I mean, Christine Lagarde at the ECB, the European Central Bank, she's very wise on this issue. And, and as she's thinking this through, and of course, she'll be under enormous pressure, um, I am sure that she will be thinking about these issues. The idiot in the White House is not going to do that, right? I mean, he's just going to be supporting and and, and subsidising carbon emitters and doing whatever else. So, I mean, this is unfortunately a kind of a, a moment at which the US may lose even more relevance than it was losing already if they're unable to structure that stimulus in a way that creates the future. I mean, if they keep creating the past, then they're going to turn this into a double tragedy of both a pandemic and kind of putting a nail in their coffin in terms of their own role in the global economy of the future. At a tiny point, all the technologies that are supporting us now, the internet, the video communication, Zoom, Microsoft, WebEx, the you know, Cisco, these these companies that have created the, the world we're now dependent upon are mostly US companies. So there is that there are the yeah, seeds of the transformation there. Yeah, that's true. And honestly, you know, what what a powerful market signal these companies should be receiving. The fact that we're now choosing to, well, unless you're heavily rec uh, regulated by governments, but um, but with a few exceptions where it's really very strict, this isolation, actually most people are choosing because their companies um, have actually asked them to work from home. And we know how many international conferences have been canceled, et cetera. But this is the most powerful signal I have ever seen to have something done that, Paul, you have been calling for for years, which is a serious... It's your moment, Paul. Finally, we're getting around to it. A serious <laughs> investment. I was just sorry. It's a little interlude here. You know, you said uh, earlier that, that Tom was snug, but I think you meant smug. So this is my smug moment. Okay, my 1999 master's thesis was called Action to Reduce CO2 Emissions Through Increased Use of Video Conferencing. We've been trying to prevent been... him doing this on the podcast for months. That's I can't it. Now. <laughs> sorry, listeners. <laughs> didn't 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 we have a long treatise on this last week already? Yeah, with the beginning of a series of treatises that can get longer and longer and more and more detailed yeah. until finally I'm switched off. Okay, well yeah. then I I can just summarize, right? Uh, honestly, yeah. for those um, listeners who are still with us, yeah, Clay. Yeah, well, I was going to say we almost had a thesis last week 
but I cut it short. Oh, yeah, you, you edited it all out. <laughs> actually, that's what I was going to say. I've written it all down here, Clay. You can't edit it out. But actually, no, I mean, one thing that we've, we've been talking about is, is moving towards a little bit more video ourselves, but that's another story for another day. Christiana, you had a point. Sorry, Clay. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, I guess my point was just the summary of what Paul would, you know, cascade uh, for the next 45 minutes about, uh, which is a serious investment into much more cutting-edge technologies that allow us to have not just this little conversation among four or five of us, but actually big conversations, right? Big conversations. Uh, and uh, Tom, I know that uh, that there, you know, our friends who organize very large conferences are um, are are really, you know, trying to figure this out. Is the technology there? Is the technology there to go beyond our little chats of three, four, five, 10, 12 people? Can we actually have a virtual conference that is effective yeah. with thousands of people? That is the big question. And I've got to say, I mean, you know, I I participated in a in an all day long Zoom meeting with 50 people last week. And I was, I mean, I I'm clearly demonstrating my own ignorance, Zoom being the technology platform that we're using now for our video call. And um, there was a plenary session where there was a keynote speaker. Then we were suddenly divided up into little groups of four or five and we were having a little chat between us. Then we went back to the plenary and it was amazing. Um, and, you know, I mean, frankly, the advantage of the fact that in five minutes we'll finish this call and I'll go downstairs and have dinner with my kids with no travel required is remarkable. Christiana asked, can we do all of these things? And I think it was Barack Obama who said, yes, we can. I think you're right. It was Barack <laughs> Okay, so, so like maybe people have heard that slogan before. I wasn't expecting people to break out and say it was like the first time you'd ever heard it. I was just saying it was such a good one. I wanted to borrow it from Barack Obama. He was, you know, a very eloquent person. We miss him. So I have one more thing I just wanted to raise. Um, and I know we're coming towards the end of this, this, this episode, which is very different, but it's been a lot of fun. Um, this is an amazing statistic from a great column in the FT that Simon Cooper wrote, who's a really interesting columnist, where he talked about the fact that the changes we're having to make as a result of coronavirus are likely to lead to deep changes in habit that will massively increase the sustainability of our society, which is something we touched on last week. But in it, he draws out the fact that air pollution kills 1.1 million people in China alone every year. And there has been some analysis now out of Stanford that demonstrates that the fall in pollution as a result of the lockdown in January and February likely saved 20 times more lives in China than have currently been lost due to infection by the virus in that country. Now, of course, that doesn't mean in any way that the virus is a good thing, but it is interesting that it is part of a complex picture of risk. And there are so many, it just underlines the fact there are so many other benefits to the lifestyle changes we're now being called to make. Yeah, and it also means, it also shows that we don't really understand public health and public risk. You know, industry takes over and without something as visceral and direct as an infective disease, an infectious disease, we can't see the data that's staring us in the face. Yeah. So I was part of... Uh, a call that you were having with friends from Plum Village, actually, Tom, and I, uh, this is a, a Buddhist retreat center set up by Thich Nhat Hanh in, in, in the south of France, but in other locations. And I heard a monk there say to you that uh, the world was going on retreat and you had a little bit of an exchange about what that really meant. And uh, 
If I remember, Tom, uh, because of course you spent uh, a year and a half as a, as a monk in, in some degree of, of isolation, so to say, and I, I believe that, that uh, the monk said to you uh, that you got to find out what happens to the mind when the noise stops. So as we're all, in a sense, going on retreat, I just wondered if you could share with listeners what it means uh, when, when the noise stops. What does happen to your mind? Sure. So, I mean, it's it's obviously a, a somewhat different circumstance, but not completely different, right? Because we are, many of us are sort of sitting on our own um, in our homes and uh, spending a lot more time with ourselves than we're used to. Um, and my, my experience of that is that the mind sort of has a momentum to it in terms of what it's accustomed to. And if you think about what we're accustomed to, we're accustomed to the next exciting thing all the time, the next interesting conversation, the next bit of food, the next, you know, it tantalizes one of the senses, right? And um, in the experience you're talking about, which won't be exactly the same as what people are going through, but to some degree the same, when that stops, the mind kind of goes a little bit crazy, right? It kind of wants all of that still. And it slightly panics because that what it's become used to, this anticipation of this next sensory experience isn't coming. Which um, might be some of the anxiousness people right. are feeling, right? The thing that I found is it takes a little while, but after a couple of weeks, actually, you begin to feel much happier because a lower level of that sensory input actually seems to lead to a greater level of well-being. And my experience is that after some days of that or some weeks of that, um, I could sort of look around for the first time and my mind was quiet enough to sort of see what was happening. So it was an amazing experience. And I mean, it would be if humanity got to experience some taste of that writ large in the next few months, it, I think it would change the world. But I have to say it also, I mean, being in a monastery sort of trapped there was kind of almost intolerable at times. I used to hike from my cootie to the edge of the forest and then go through the gate and just stand there and watch the buses go back and forth to remind myself that I could leave to sort of release this sense of being trapped there before I could kind of go back to my my heart and carry on with my solitude. I mean, one small story I do remember, Tom, uh, you were speaking to some colleagues about your experience and you said that actually when your mind calmed like that, you could look just at a leaf, you know, on the forest floor and see its absolute overwhelming beauty for the first time. That really stuck with I, me. I didn't want to sound too much like a kind of psychedelic hippie in front of the thousands of people listening, but yeah, absolutely, you're right, Paul. That's exactly the experience. Thank you for that insight, Tom, and I, I hope people find it interesting. I actually, um, sorry to impose lists on you all, but I actually also made a little list of things that all of us can do. And I thought I will share the list with our listeners because maybe people are thinking, what can I do? And under the premise that the only way to deal with our personal fear is actually to stand up and begin to act on our own benefit or for our own benefit, as well as for the benefit of our others. And this is true of climate change, it's true of coronavirus, it is true of any other fear that may be paralyzing us. So um, on that premise, I have a little list of actions that all of us can undertake. Good. Please, can we have this list? Assuming that we all understand that older people are going to be more isolated than anyone else, make a list of all of the older people you know. I've actually made my list. I have 10 people on my list. I have their phone numbers. I am committing to call them once a day or maybe every two days. 
A call with video capacity is even better, like FaceTime or WhatsApp with with video or anything so that they can actually see another person. Um, And just ask, how are they doing? Do they need something? Offer to do their food shopping, get their medications, take care of their pets. Um, Drop off a, a card, a bowl of soup, a bunch of flowers, a box of chocolates, something. Of course, make sure that you're totally antiseptic if you're close to to where they're isolating. And show the same, you know, love and support for people who are living by themselves um, or are isolating on their own. They will be incredibly lonely and they need that kind of support. I've already mentioned the importance of supporting uh, the virtual, uh, sorry, the informal workforce of people who we know work depend on hourly wages and who may not be getting those, um, those wages. In addition, let us be very intentional about building virtual community groups that are connected electronically. Thank God we have this technology now. And sharing thoughts, needs, feelings. We've been doing this for the past few days here in Costa Rica. The beauty of our uh, new technology that Paul loves is that distance is completely irrelevant. So you can actually have these little community groups with people who are you know, in the flat right next to you or halfway around the world. It doesn't matter because distance is completely irrelevant. And you can set common goals to motivate like shared achievement, right? Uh, a virtual book club, everybody reads the same book and then gets together to to discuss it or um, collect like I have done inspirational stories in a time of crisis. Or in fact, even, you know, if, if you're physically close, can you do errands for each other for those who can go out into the streets? Um, Also, if you have a mindfulness or a yoga practice or any other practice that helps people deal with their stress, their fear, their anxiety, offer virtual training for people who would like to and um, get use this opportunity to have a better, healthier resilience capacity in their own uh, in their own lives. Um, and then here is one directly for you, Tom. Here's one you can do. Because clearly you, uh, being the expert in homeschooling, <laughs> I'm sure that you have innovative ideas. That's Natasha. I'm, I have to put my hand up there. That's Natasha, okay, okay, okay. Expert. Natasha, yeah, yeah, yeah. where are you? But um, all innovative ideas of what to do with children who are home now for 27 hours a day, um, share them broadly, right? Share them with your community groups. Share them on on. Instagram, on Facebook, on on Twitter, whatever. There are so many parents who are under double stress. They are concerned about their own health and the health of their children. And they're concerned about what do they do with children who are home for 27 hours when when they haven't homeschooled them for the past three decades as Tom has. So um, there's a little little list. Um, And I'm sure there are many, many other things. The point of this list is each of us can at least find one thing that we can take action on that will help us feel better, will definitely help many other people. And in the long run, it will begin to build this network of solidarity, of of caring, uh, and of empathy that we actually need for all global issues from now on. Yeah. And I think that last point you made there is really critical, right? Because we've learned from climate as the as people have felt this sense of anxiety around climate, once they start taking action, they feel better. Then they start to feel a sense of control that they're not just, you know, subject to these terrible forces. The same will be true of this. If people are feeling anxious or they're feeling afraid, actually getting engaged, helping neighbors, helping community, you know, do, 
doing what you need, you can locally or doing stuff online will help you feel better as a result of it as well and feel more connected. So exactly. it's good for everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's good for everyone. It's a, gr- it's, it's a great list. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for sharing it. And to our listeners, please share your list, your ideas, your stories, and, and we'll try and aggregate them together as best we can and share them for everybody. Actually, Clay, had we not talked about that, about inviting our listeners to send in their um, their ideas of what they're doing, how, have, have we decided on that and how to do that? Yes. So listeners, if you have a story to share of how you've been enacting your stubborn optimism in our new normal, or you want to share something you've experienced in the past few weeks that's creative, empathetic, brilliant, or, you know, just fun, grab your phone, open the voice memo app, record a little audio memo for us and keep it to 60 seconds or less and send it to podcast at globaloptimism.com. We're going to do something with them. We're not sure what yet, but we're looking forward to hearing what you all have to share. And I actually did one of the things on your list, Christiana, and I thought I might share ah. as an example. So last night, I, uh, along with my three-month-old son, Emrys, FaceTimed a few friends and family to you know check in. But for some extra fun, I made sure that when the person on the other end of the FaceTime call answered, it looked oh. like it was just Emrys. That was your little baby. (laughs) Your little baby. Oh my gosh. So it was was like getting a FaceTime call from a three month old baby. (laughs) You you know, it completely disarmed any anxiety or stress that people had. And it was so much fun to see the look on their faces and hear their reactions. One of the people was my grandmother. So his great grandmother, who just turned 80. And uh, I think we'll be dialing her a lot more often now. I highly recommend it. Cool. Oh, Clay, that is such a beautiful story. I love that. That is a great story. Awesome. Cool. So this has been a different episode of Outrage and Optimism. It's been our first ever episode without a guest. So I hope you survived 45 minutes of the three of us or the four of us with Clay uh, chatting with you. But we are very keen to play our part in what the world is trying to do now. And we're thinking about what we're going to do. We're going to put a bit more content out. We might do some things on Facebook Live. Um, We will put all of this out on Twitter or maybe as a separate feed on the podcast when we've kind of determined what we're going to do. So look out for that in the next few days. But we're here. I mean, like all of you, we're not going anywhere. I'm in I'm in the west of England near Bath. Paul's in London. Christiana's in Costa Rica. We are, Clay's in Detroit. We just speak remotely and we're going to put And Marina content. is in Costa Rica. And Marina is Yay. in Costa Rica. I, I can share with our listeners that it's almost intolerable having colleagues on the beach in Costa Rica uh, in March in the UK. But, <laughs> but anyway, that's a separate issue. Um... Right. So thanks for joining us. Um, I hope you're all doing well and you're all staying healthy. And um, we will speak to you again very soon. And we look forward to sharing something of the next few months with you and engaging with you more and hearing how it is and and discussing with you. So um, thanks for dialing in this week. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, everyone. Great to be with you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So there you have it, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell and executive produced by Marina Mancidia-Germán. I'd like to thank Callum Grieve, Pete Kluttenbrock, Sarah Thomas, Chloe Revel, Daniel Fink, Sylvie Snow-Thomas, and the team at L Communications, Zoe Charlock-Antich, Lara Richardson, James Douglas, Caitlin Allen, Sharon Johnson, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. As I just mentioned a few moments ago, send in your 60-second stories of amazing things that you're up to or are witnessing 
as we are all experiencing this new normal. Podcast at globaloptimism.com is the email address. We are really looking forward to hearing from you. I say it every week, but I mean it. You can find us at Global Optimism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and probably MySpace if that was still a thing. And last but not least, I've added a link in the show notes to the World Health Organization's webpage on how to protect yourself and others from COVID-19. Please read, share, and help educate others. We need to be following their advice as a matter of public safety. One small action you can do can save someone's life, and we're all in this together. Okay, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.